Well, this morning, as Mark mentioned, we are turning to 3 John. We studied 1 John, then we took a break and we thought about the resurrection. Then we uh, came back and we've returned to 2 John. We spent two weeks on 2 John and we will do two weeks on 3 John. And so uh, while we read the whole text for this morning's uh, New Testament reading, our text today that we're looking at is verses 1 through 8 of 3 John. And then we're going to do we're going to do two weeks on Third John. And then we're going to take a couple weeks, and we're going to think about the doctrine of Christian liberty from Romans chapter fourteen before we spend the rest of our summer in the Psalms. Just so you know where where we're going uh, for the rest of this uh, season until the season of Advent. Well, today we come to Third John, and the themes will not be unfamiliar to you as you hear them. Uh, again, if we've read through First John, and then again it's Second John. Third John, we, we can tell we're dealing with the same author because the themes are consistent. One of the unique things about Third John, however, is that he's, he seems to be writing to one specific person, right? This man named Gaius. In Second John, the oddity of that was he spoke of the church. He, he, he started waxing very poetic. Uh, perhaps he had just come off of writing Revelation. And he was speaking in terms of, uh, of poetry and symbol and metaphor, speaking of the church as the lady, the elect lady, uh, and it was a beautiful image of the church. Here he speaks to one specific person, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. And I want us to think about three things today. I want us to think about John's prayer for Gaius. And I want us to think about John's joy when he reflects on Gaius, that we might share in that ourselves. And then finally, John's commission or his charge to Gaius and through Gaius, I think, to the whole church and certainly to us. <clears throat> John begins, he refers to himself in the same way that he did in Second John. He just refers to himself as the elder, right? John is in old age at this point, uh, to be sure. And he writes to the beloved Gaius, and I only comment on this because it's consistent also with 2 John, right? To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. And again, we could just spend the rest of the sermon unpacking that. But for John, we have seen in 1 John and in 2 John, and now again in 3 John, these, this wonderful union of love and truth. One, they are tests. How do we know we're a true church? And how are we supposed to recognize false teachers and true teachers? And John is held up as we thought about, we reviewed last week, right? These different tests. Well, do they care about righteousness or do they go on sinning? That, that's a test, the moral test. But also, do they love the people of God? Do they love one another? What's their perspective on the people of God? And again, We'll, while we'll come to this in Gaius's case, we can also think of the parable that we looked at in Matthew 25. And think about the place that loving the people of God has in that parable. It, it is the determining factor of whether you are a sheep or a goat, whether you enter into eternal glory or into everlasting punishment. It's not what earns it. As we said in the assurance of power, right? we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Yes. So the, the work of the saints 
there that make them sheep or that identify them as sheep and the fact that they love the church and clothed Christ in the brethren when he was naked and fed him when he was hungry and gave him drink when he is thirsty marks them out as the people of God. But in that parable, it is the determinant factor. That's how important loving the people of God is. Loving the brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we do that? Do these itinerant preachers who are coming into the churches that John has, uh, has planted, are they doing that? It's a mark by which we can identify them. Do they love the people of God? You can't say you love God if you don't love your brother. So they could be spitting out all kinds of, they could be saying they're, they can be identifying themselves as children of God. They can be saying they love God. They can be saying they're ministers of the truth. But if they don't love their brethren, then indeed they do not love God. And even as we heard in the end of this text, they don't even know God. They haven't seen him. So do they care about righteousness? Do they love? And do they speak the truth? The truth that was once for all handed down to the saints. The truth that is not new, John says, but that I just bring to you that which, we, which we've heard and we've been taught by our Savior. So these have been the tests. And John sees no tension. And we spent some time on this in Sunday school uh, last week and the week before. No tension between love and truth. And if I tell you the truth, I can do it in an unloving way. But I can tell you the truth in love. And if I love you, I will tell you the truth. And John says to Gaius, I love you in the truth. These are things that are not at all at odds for John. Now, I want us to, again, as I said, think about three things. First, I want to start with John's prayer or his blessing that he prays, pronounces, desires, asks for in, on Gaius' behalf. So verse 2. Beloved, Gaius, the one who is beloved. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. I'm pausing here to spend a moment on this because in some sense it's the opposite, not the opposite, but it's the balance to many other things that I've said. That is, many times from this pulpit, I have you know, spoken very harshly about the prosperity gospel, right? About those who go around proclaiming that God's ultimate desire for you is that you prosper physically, right? That you be in good health and that your bank account be full, right? That you have a good life by sort of an American standard of things. And I've railed against that because we could spend much time going through the scriptures and seeing how those who are blessed of God in fact, suffer and sometimes suffer the worst. Paul himself, I think it would be hard for us to say that somebody was more loved by God. Paul, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, who nonetheless has this thorn in the flesh that he prays three seasons of prayer, asking the Lord to remove this from him. And the Lord says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. We spend time looking at Peter, and in 1 Peter, he says, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. Jesus says, inasmuch as you suffer with me and for my name, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. You are blessed. That's in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when you suffer for my name's sake. So we have to be very, very careful 
that we don't slide down that road. It's a, it's a very attractive road, especially to American materialists, right? We tend toward this materialist mindset. And so when we have people come along and say, God's desire for you is that you prosper materially, that's his ultimate desire for you, and you should pursue it. And if you're not prospering materially, then that means there is something wrong with your soul. Right? You're not right with him. What are you doing? Much like Job's counselors. What did you do to bring this, this bad state of affairs on yourself? We heard about uh, 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 people suffering with cancer and other physical conditions. What have you done, Job, to make God so angry? It's a very easy way to think, and we have railed against that here. No, God desires something else for you, right? Even we spent time just a couple weeks ago thinking about Romans 8, 28. For all things work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. But what is the good to which all things are working? Is it your physical prosperity? No, that's not what it's saying in the text, right? We know all things work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. For all those he foreknew, he also predestined that they might be conformed to the image of his son. That is the good. That you be conformed to the image of Jesus is the good. That's what you need. And that is what God is doing in you and through you. He is conforming you to the image of his son. And you can be confident in this, that everything in your life, and everything in the cosmos is being used by God to work you to that end. So we have to be very, very careful how we understand. So you've heard a lot of that from this pulpit. But then here we have in this text a nice and wonderful balance to that because we can slide over into another, uh, to, to a, also a, a, a wrong-headed mindset on this issue. And to say, okay, so then, Bill, what we're saying is we should not care about physical or material things. We shouldn't care about uh, a material prosperity. These things just shouldn't matter to us. In fact, if we're thinking at all about them, perhaps we're being unspiritual. Because really what should, we should care about is not the body, not this material life that we live, but our spiritual life, right? Our souls. We could slide into that. And that's why I take time to pause here because John's prayer pushes back, right? Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So one thing he knows about Gaius and what he's going to say, this is my great joy, Gaius, is that your soul is prospering. Your soul is thriving. You are a man of God who is bearing much fruit in your life. Praise be to God. And Gaius, my prayer for you is that you would also prosper physically, that you would be in good health and that all your needs would be met. That's a wonderful prayer. And so again, it's a pushback. The body does matter. And it's not a bad thing to pray for. Right? We spend, I, I'm sometimes convicted in fact, how much we pray for physical issues, right? How much, think about your own prayer life, how much of it is for physical needs that everyone has, right? Whether it's health or somebody needing a job or somebody who's going through you know, grief and we, we're dealing with all these things sort of in this material world and life that we live. How much of our prayer life is consumed with those kinds of requests? And I think generally for us as modern Christians, uh, contemporary Christians, Probably our prayer life's a little out of balance. We have fewer kingdom prayers than we do sort of 
bearing the physical burdens of our neighbors and brothers, but bearing the physical concerns and burdens of our brothers and sisters is a good thing. It's a right thing. And we see that here with John in this text as he prays for the physical prosperity and health, the body of his beloved Gaius. And even in the prayer that we pray every Sunday here, in the Lord's Prayer, in which we are very familiar with, Jesus himself tells us to pray for such things. Give us this day our daily bread. So we are to pray for these things. We're to pray for them not only for ourselves, but to pray for one another. And I know I don't have to tell you this, again, because our prayer lives tend to be dominated by these things, but I do want you to hear me confirming it, that it is good for us to remember our physical concerns and to pray for one another's well-being, to pray for one another's health, and to pray that each other's needs may be met, inasmuch as their soul is also prospering. So first, I just wanted to spend a moment on John's prayer for Gaius, and may it be our prayer for one another. And let us not fall onto one side as if only the soul matters, or of course, only the body matters, but that these things both matter for the kingdom of God. So John's prayer. Secondly, John's joy. And this really is the bulk of our short little text this morning, is John's joy. Verse 3, For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. And we hear, we know that language of my children takes us back to 1 John, where he was constantly referring to the church as my little children. So his children are those whom, by God's grace, he has led to the Lord, who have come into the churches that he has planted. And what is his joy? What is the news he waits to hear and the reports he loves to hear when the reports get to him? Is that his children are walking in the truth. I chose that phrase for the title of the sermon this morning and one sort of what I want to leave you with as the point of contemplation today. What does it mean to walk in the truth? Generally, when we think about truth, we think about believing it or knowing it or finding it, right? We search for the truth. We know the truth. We believe the truth. Truth is something you do here. This is how we generally think of truth. This is, the, this is the organ for dealing with truth. But John takes truth and he puts it in our feet. We, it's something we walk in. And again, here's a balance. In, in some sense, John is teaching us a balancing act in this text this morning. Balancing the soul and the body. Your soul is prospering. I'm so excited to hear that. Man, I pray that your body would also prosper. And you have the truth, Gaius, and you are walking in it. I think of the command that the Lord gives us to love him. Right? In, earlier in the text, Deuteronomy, we read, we read Deuteronomy 10, but back in Deuteronomy 6, right? what are we told? This is the commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. We love God with our mind. We love him with our heart. We love him with our strength, with our bodies, with what we do. 
and this is the joy that John has regarding Gaius, is that Gaius is a man, apparently, whom John loves so much. The beloved disciple loves Gaius because he's a man who not only knows the truth, but he lives it. He walks in it. He puts it into action. That, that back end of that text in Deuteronomy 10 that we read is our Old Testament reading. Here, God is speaking through Moses to a people who were delivered out of Egypt and brought out into the wilderness. Now, he's writing to the second generation. That first generation has died. But those to whom he's writing are those who watched their parents die in the wilderness, not inheriting the land that God had for them. Why? Because they refused to walk in the truth. They got to the Jordan River and they abandoned the truth. There's no way we win this battle. Those guys are giants in there. We can't beat them. We're not going in. We'd rather go back to Egypt. And they died in the wilderness. And now as the law comes back, Deuteronomy means second law. So it's the law now, right? He, in that very text even, take the tablets, God writes them again, Put them in the Ark of the Covenant. And now let me remind you of what's in there. You're to love your God. And you are to serve and obey him. That is to say, you are not just to know stuff about God. This is a huge danger for people like us. Especially Reformed people, because we take knowing stuff very seriously. The Reformed branch of the Christian faith love to study. They love to read. They love to debate theology. It comes so naturally to us as Reformed people. It's what we do. But we have to be very, very careful that we don't end up collecting a bunch of knowledge about God that we convince ourselves is true belief in God. Right? When I, when I teach my students about what faith is. I break it down into three components. Like what is saving faith? Like if we, if we dissected saving faith, what would it be? What are the component parts of it? Like, like, you know, like you did in 10th grade biology class or whatever you did when you took the frog and you cut it open and it was that gross day and you had to pull the parts out. We all had to do it. Because it does come a point in which you gotta see what's in there. Right? We, we can't just be taught about what a liver is. We've got to pull one out and see it. So we dissect the frog. If we did that to faith, if we said, let's put saving faith on the bio lab table, cut it open and see what's in there, what would we find? And one thing we would find is knowledge. In order to have faith in Christ, I must know stuff about him. In order to have faith in God, I must know stuff about him, yes. And you'd reach back in there and you'd pull out belief that to have saving faith, you must know stuff and then you must believe it's true. Just because you know stuff doesn't mean you believe it. I know what Islam teaches, but I'm not a Muslim. I don't believe these things about Muhammad. I don't believe these things that the Quran says, though I may know what the five pillars are. Just because I know something doesn't mean I believe it. To have true faith, I must know it and I must believe it. And with my students, oftentimes I tell them, for many of us 
especially who grew up in the Christian faith, that's kind of what we think. That's all we'll find in faith is as long as you know the stuff and as long as you believe it, then you have faith. And I think what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy and even what John is rejoicing in here in Gaius is that no, that's wrong. Just because you know it and just because you believe it still does not mean you have saving faith. There is another essential component to saving faith and that is trust. Trust. And trust takes belief and puts it into action. Trust is what demonstrates that belief is true belief. You can say you believe something, but when you live as if it is true, that's trust. This gets us to the James 2 level of faith. You say you have faith. I will show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead because faith without works it's not true faith. It's, it's dead faith. It's knowledge and belief. You say you know that there is one God. Great. Even the demons know this and they believe it's true. Just because, just because you know something's true and because you believe it, as R.C. Sproul says, qualifies you to be a demon. It, like, it gets you to the, the level of demon. That's as good as it does. You must have that third element of trust. So I challenge you. I ask you to look inside now. Don't let my words wash over you. Do you have trust? Do you walk in the truth? Not just do you know the truth. I know you all. Well, I'll get to know you after the service. And Kyle, I'll get to, I met you, but I'll get to know you later. (laughs) You walk in the truth. (laughs) But I know the rest of you, and I know you know the truth. I know that. And I know you believe it. It's like I tell my students again, I say, if I gave you a quiz, I said, do you believe, you know, the Apostles' Creed? You'd say, yes, true, 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 true. You get 100% on the quiz. I know you know it and I know you believe it. But are we walking in the truth? That's the trust, right? Do we live, and here's here's the little test for us. Do we live as if what we believe is true is really true? Like, do, do you live in such a way that it manifests that what you believe is true, you really do think is true. Again, our actions reveal what we think is true. The illustration I use for this all the time is if I, was, if I went down to visit Ben down in Brooklyn and all of a sudden I feel something stuck in my back and somebody says, give me all your money. It's your money or your life. <laughs> now I'd have to make a decision. What do I think is happening right now? I can't see what's behind me. All I know is something's stuck in my back and I'm hearing a voice, your money or your life. Now, if I think that's Ben behind me, goofing around with me because the, the country hick just came down to Brooklyn and he's going he's gonna to play with me a little bit. And I think that's Ben behind me. If that's what I believe is true, I'll, my actions will manifest it, right? I'll joke around a bit. Oh no, please don't shoot. Knock it off. You know, I'll goof around with him. If that now may not, I may be wrong. Maybe a guy really mugging me back there. But my actions will demonstrate what I think. Or if I'm scared out of my wits, if I, it may be Ben back there, but if I believe I'm being mugged right now, my actions will reveal it. My actions will demonstrate what I believe is actually happening behind me. Of course, I'd turn around and beat the guy up and wrestle him to the ground. That's what I would do. But, but my actions will reveal what I think is happening behind me. 
and this is true in our Christian lives as well, your actions do reveal. They are the fruit of what you confess to be true. And what John rejoices in here is the fact that Gaius is not just knowing, but he is walking in the truth. That he manifests a pattern of life that lives as if what he thinks is true is in fact really true. Now, how does this manifest itself in Gaius's life? I'm sure it manifests itself in a a multitude of ways and John is excited to hear the reports back as he writes to Gaius and he's just pumping him up and complimenting him. But here specifically in Gaius' life, the way it has manifested itself is in a love and a care for his brothers, particularly for these traveling ministers. That's how it's manifested itself in Gaius' life. So what's happening is you you plant these churches and John has planted churches all over, but how do you find ministers to go into all these churches in areas where it's first-generation Christians? Like, these guys don't have a lot of training. It's hard to find elders in your church. How do you find ministers in the church? And so, like the Methodists did in the early days of our country when they came over and they started doing all this preaching in the fields, you know, Whitfield and Wesley, and they're preaching all over, and all of a sudden churches were formed. Well, who's going to preach there? These people are newly converted people. And so you'd find a guy who could preach and you send him on a circuit and you say, okay, hey, listen, these, you know, we, we don't have a, a pastor for every church. So you pastor five churches and you preach there and then you ride to that church and you preach and then you ride to that church and you preach and you just kind of go on a circuit where you're ministering to the local church and then leaving and leaving and leaving and leaving. Just kind of run a circuit of churches where you preach and pastor. And that's something very similar to what is going on here. So the, these ministers are coming in to preach or to speak or to check on or minister to the local church. And who's going to provide for them? Who's going to care for them? Who's going to put them up? Well, apparently Gaius is the guy signing right up, like, come stay with me. And these people are staying in Gaius's house. He's feeding them. He's taking them in and he's sending them on their way. Which makes a lot of sense, by the way, of the text that we looked at last, uh, a couple weeks ago in Second John, where, he, where John says to that church in the negative, if you take these false teachers in, you're condemned along with them. That this is a serious act. You are, you are partnering in the ministry of the gospel when you take these men in. And if you welcome the false teachers and you do the same thing for them, you bring them in, then you are partnering with their false teaching. So be very careful. And that's why he tells them, to be discerning and gives them the things to look for. But that's not what's happening in this text. In this text, Gaius is welcoming in the faithful teachers, the faithful men as they come. Men who have come and they have not taken any money from Gentiles. Unlike other traveling teachers in the secular world who come into an area, they set up a tent, they begin to teach. People come because they like their wisdom. They sit at their feet. They charge them a small fee. They get the money. They grow in, in, in their reputation. More people come, and that's how they make their living. And then eventually they pick up their tent and they go to another city. That's how the, the pagans do it. Not so with these traveling ministers. They have not taken a dime. They're not marketing the gospel. They're not going to live off of you know, their revenue and that, hey, here's listen, I'm going to preach the gospel, but I'm going to do it in a way in which you, you put some shekels in, the, in, in, in my pot when I'm done. Not going to do that. Like Paul, I'm going to come in and I'm going to 
if I'm going to lean, it's only going to be on the people of God. But even for Paul, he wouldn't do that, right? He went out and became a tent maker. So John is saying, these men have come and they have not taken a dime from the pagan world. And therefore, they need the church to support them. They need the church to care for them. And Gaius, you have done it. You've done what Jesus talks about in Matthew 25, right? You saw Christ without a place to stay and you put him up. You saw Christ without food and you brought him in and you gave him a good meal. Well, when did I see Christ do that? When, when, I didn't see Christ naked. I didn't see Christ needing a room. I didn't see Christ needing food. Gaius, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. May we have the eyes of Gaius. May we see the needs of the people of God and in so doing, serve Christ. So John's prayer for Gaius is physical prosperity as much as spiritual prosperity. His joy is in Gaius's walking in the truth, this trust, this living out the faith that he claims to have. And then finally, John's charge. And we'll take this as a charge to us because he now puts it in the plural. Right? He's speaking to Gaius, the beloved, but then he, he changes. Uh, beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. So there, these men that you have taken in, man, when people come through this town and they meet Gaius, Gaius just loves on them and he provides for them. And they go on and they say, well, you got this guy, Gaius, what a blessing he was to me. So the word is getting out there. That's what he's saying. These people have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well. That is, he's not only caring for them, but he's putting money in their pocket making sure that they're taken care of when they leave his doors and go off to the next church. These guys are taken care of until they find the next Gaius in the next city. And here's why you do well if you do this, because they went forth for his namesake, these ministers of the gospel, taking nothing from the Gentiles. And then here's the charge, verse eight. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. So John sees in Gaius a model for us all. And so I give you this charge as well. The Lord has not called us all to be evangelists. He's not called us all to be pastors. He's not called us all to be missionaries. But he has called some to be missionaries. Right? He has called some to be evangelists. And we know because we support some church planters. We should support B. We support Tony trying to do that work in Serbia. We support the work of those who are drilling wells in India, right? We we're not all going to go do that. The Lord has called us to other things. You have jobs and callings and families or whatever that the Lord has called you to do. And that's really important. In, in the very beginning of the story of the Bible in Genesis 1, when God made man, he gave him what's called the cultural mandate. That is, he gave him a task. God has gifted you all. And he has sent you in the world to make culture, to be fruitful multipliers, not just of babies, though that's good, but multipliers of his creation, right? He has, he has made a world and he bequeathed it to you. And he said, now go multiply it. And we have, that's what we, that's what we have in culture. We have imitated our God and our creator by making stuff of the stuff he made. 
And so when you do that in your careers, when you do that in your callings, and as Christians, we talk more about callings than careers because we believe we do what we do because we have identified the gifts that God has given us and the opportunities he has given us, and now we're trying to be faithful with it and imitate our creator by being a fruitful multiplier, a filler of the earth with good things. And when we fill the earth with good things and all of our different callings, we are imitating God and we are being used by God to bless our neighbor. When you do your job, you are the providential hands and feet of God to bless his creation. That, that's what we do. We are imitating God and we're being used by God. So what you do in the cultural mandate is good stuff and to be done faithfully. It can be done rebelliously. It can be done idolatrously. But as Christians... We do it faithfully as unto the Lord. And we trust that the Lord is using our work to, again, bless our neighbor. So you are loving your neighbor and you are loving your brother and sister in as much as you do your vocation and do it well to the glory of God. Well done. That's what you're called to do. And we're all called to do that. Then there's another commission, and that comes later in the Gospels. The Great Commission. Go and be fruitful multipliers in another way. Right? Not just in all of our vocations, but the church specifically is called to go into the world and to fill it, to be fruitful multipliers for the kingdom of God. To spread and fill the earth with the truth of God, with the light of the goodness of his gospel. That's what we're to do, to teach all men to obey all that Christ taught us. Now, how do we do that? We are not all called to drop our secular vocations and to go off to the mission field. That is not the call. The call of the Great Commission is a call to the church. The church must do this as an institution. We must be filling the earth with the gospel. But within the church, we have different roles and ways we do it. And some are goers and some are givers and some are receivers and Right? The, the hospitable Gaius who, who brings people in and he's doing it. He's, I don't know what he does for a living. He's probably not a minister. He's just a faithful man who when these ministers come, he provides for them. And you are doing it in as much as you are giving here at the church and throughout your lives. But then through the church as we support Stephen, as we support Tony, as we support the work in, in Rochester and around the world, whatever we do. And I want you to rejoice in the fact that you do that, that that is no small thing. We're not all called to be goers, but we're called all to participate in this work of kingdom building in one way or another. We cannot shirk it. We can't say, well, no, but God called me to be a plumber and that's what I do. Yes, God called you to be a plumber and you do that as part of the imitation of God and the cultural mandate. But as a member of the church, he has also called you to be participating in the Great Commission, to be sending or going or hosting, or how can we do it? How can we use our gifts and abilities to that end? And I particularly love the language of verse 8. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. When we give and then we cut a check to Beeve in Germany 
And he makes this point almost every time he comes. It's our work. And when I say our, I mean ours and his. We're not just giving to his work, right? This isn't charity where we give to help him out over there. We are fellow workers. You are a partner in the work of Neuenburg International Church. You are a partner in the work of Freshwater Friends. You're not just a, a giver. It's not just you're writing a check and giving money. You're giving yourself to that. You are a partner. You are a co-worker in that ministry. That's what we're doing in the kingdom. And that's John's charge to us. May that be true of us. May we be like you, Gaius, who see it as no small thing to host the itinerant minister and to help him provide for his needs. May we see it as no small thing to care for the needs of our brother and sister who Jesus says in Matthew 25 are Christ to us, that to serve them is to serve Christ. May that be true of us as a church, may it be true of us as individuals, that we don't just know a lot of stuff, but that we walk in it, that we live it. I have no doubt that John is willing to pray what he prays for Gaius. Gaius, I just pray that you prosper physically, financially, in every way. Do you know why John, I believe, can pray that for Gaius? Because he knows what Gaius will do with it. Gaius will give it away. Gaius will use it to serve and to love his brothers and sisters. That's why I believe he can pray such a thing. I want you to prosper because I've seen what you do with what the Lord has invested in you. And may that be, again, true of us as a church. May it be true of us as individuals. May we be like Gaius, faithful with what the Lord has given, serving and being co-workers with others for the sake of the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ways you have blessed us. Make us like Gaius, we pray. Father, take all that you've given to us and use it, we pray, that with it we might serve you, that we might be your hands and your feet, not only in our secular vocations, but Father, in our ministry, our co-working with one another, with Christ, for the sake of the kingdom. Oh, Father, it's easy to be distracted by the cares of this world. And we pray indeed that you would make the chief burden of our heart, the building of your kingdom, We pray it every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. We pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, help us not just to be hopers for these things, but to be participants, co-workers with Christ in building it. Father, indeed, make us like guys, we pray. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.